Well, the whole point of our summer series in the Psalms that we've been doing, this uh, series, Behold Your God, has been to focus our attention and our gaze on who our God is, and also to think about why that is so crucially important for our lives. If you've been with us at all this summer, you know that we've spent some time with psalms that have really sought to help us to think about a particular aspect of who God is or what God has done. We've also looked at psalms that have helped us to see why we need to have our attention and our focus on God. This morning, Psalm 115 seeks to focus our attention on the greatness of God by way of contrast, by comparing and contrasting trust in God with trusting in something else, something that we make, something that we control, what the Bible calls an idol. And this psalm seeks to help us to, to see specific details of the difference between trusting in God versus trusting in the things that we make, the things that we control. Comparing and contrasting is a really helpful way to learn. I don't know if your parents did this to you when you were a child. This is a good thing. It sounds negative. Did they do this to you? But um, you know, if you had parents that tried to help you to appreciate things in your life, like maybe you grew up with a decent amount of means you didn't want for anything, or you just, you know, you grew up in this country, and so your parents wanted you to feel that not everyone lives like this, like we do. We were trying to help our kids this summer with that, because if you have kids and you live in the western suburbs of Chicago, you realize that not every place in the world is like the western suburbs of Chicago. And we were just trying to help them to think about food. So saying, imagine that you didn't have a refrigerator full of food, and you want a cheese stick, and you, there's no cheese sticks. Or a pantry full of food, just goldfish galore, and, and Oreos, and you know all sorts of different things. And imagine if there weren't grocery stores with good food nearby, many grocery stores. And imagine if we didn't have the money, if we were wondering, I, I don't know how we're going to pay for groceries this week or this month. Maybe you've had an experience of kind of that comparing and contrasting different situations because you had a major appliance go out in your house, like your dishwasher broke, and it couldn't be fixed within, you know, the part, the part was back-ordered or something. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, hand-washing dishes is kind of terrible. And, or your laundry went out, and all of a sudden you, you have to take your laundry somewhere else to go and get it done, and you have to sit there, and you have to kind of hang out, and this is terrible. Or you had your AC go out. I've talked to a few different people. If my AC went out, that would be the worst thing in the world because I don't deal with heat or humidity well. And the debilitating feeling of not being able to escape that would crush me. Well, this psalm calls our minds to the details of the great blessings and privileges it is to trust in the living God by comparing it with trust in idols. If you look at the beginning of this passage, verses 1 and 2, they paint a picture that this psalm is written in the midst of a situation where those who are trusting in God are, are in a sense, calling on Him to act and demonstrate His faithfulness and His steadfast love while others, verse 2, are asking the question, where is your God? 
throughout Israel's history, Israel almost always has been rather small and weak compared to the nations that surround her. And in a world, in a sense, right, full of idols, like literal statues that the different peoples and nations would worship as representations of their God, Israel is also really weird because they don't do that. Israel looks strange in comparison to everyone else. And we could think about our own day, I think, again, where increasingly in our world, the church seems small and the church seems unimpressive and her message is perhaps unimpressive and can seem weak and non-credible. And this psalm speaks into that kind of situation, seeking to clearly call all people to see why they, why you and I need to trust in God. This psalm this morning really calls you to think about what am I really trusting in? What am I really looking to for goodness in my life and for fullness in my life? What am I trusting in? And compare that to the God of the Bible. So as we look at this psalm and this text this morning, I want us to think about four questions. Here they are. First, what are idols? Second, why do we make idols? Third, what's the problem with idols? And then fourth, why, why do we have to trust in God? Why must we trust in God? So first, what are idols? When we're talking about idols, what, what do we mean? Well, Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, has a great answer when he's reflecting on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And Luther writes, what does it mean to have a God? His answer? A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe from the whole heart. As I have often said, confidence and faith, the confidence and faith of the heart alone make most make both God and idol. Luther would say, your real God is whatever you look to as the source of all good in your life. The thing that you look to and you say, this is the thing that's going to deliver for me. This is the thing that's going to fill my life with goodness. Your real God, Luther says, can also be identified by wherever you go when you need refuge. When life's troubles hit you, what, the thing that you go to to try and soothe and to make yourself feel better and to feel like everything's going to be okay, everything's all right. We could add to this, your real God is whatever you love most, whatever you desire most. Your real God is whatever you fear to lose most. Your real God is the person or thing that you look to and you say, you have to accept me. You have to approve. For this psalm to have its, its way with us, I think it'd be really helpful for all of us to, to pause and think right now for ourselves, honestly ask, what do I trust? Who or what am I trusting to give me life? 
to give me protection, to be my refuge, to give me joy. Because this is your God. Or this is the thing that's trying to steal the attention of your heart from the God of the Bible, the living God. Okay, so that's, that's what an idol is. The second question, why do we make idols? And this is rather simple. We make idols because we want the things that this psalm talks about. Look at what this psalm talks about. We, we just read this, verses 9 through 15. One of the most repeated words in this section is bless or blessed. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. To bless is to show approval and favor. It's, it's a picture that we, that we see in the well-known blessing of the Old Testament, number six, the priests were to say this over Israel. Jeff and I often end a service with this well-known blessing. And they are words of approval, words of confirming God's favor toward you, his desire to protect you and to keep you and to look on you with loving affection like a parent would look on their child, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you wholeness of life, give you peace. We all want that. This is what the psalm, I think, is even saying when in verses 9 through 15, it mentions these various groups, and then it mentions the great and the small, and then it mentions, you know, the generation that's reading the psalm as well as their children. Everybody wants this. We also read in verses 9 through 15 that God is a help and a shield. Who doesn't want protection? Who, who doesn't want a source of security? Something that's going to say, you know, no matter what happens, I know I'm going to be okay. The future is secure. We read in verse 12, God remembers. And verse 14, God gives increase. Who doesn't want that? Who, who doesn't want to have a life that, that feels significant and is looked on and remembered? Who doesn't want multiplication and success? We want these things. Everybody wants these things. So why do we make idols? Because we want control. We don't want a God who tells us things that we don't want to hear or that thinks about things differently than we do. We don't want a God who challenges us, who, who tells us maybe we haven't done something right or, or we don't think rightly about something. We don't want a God that we have to wait on. We don't want a God who's independent of us, who's outside of us, who we can't control, who can't be silenced by us. And the only way then to try and move forward is to be the one who makes your own God. But that's what's so problematic about an idol. Question three, right? What is the problem with idols? One of the biggest problems with idols when compared to God, verse four, is that idols are the work of human hands. The writer here in the psalm is kind of playing on a Hebrew word to compare and contrast 
God and idols. And it's this word, asa, which when it's a noun, it means that which is made, and as a verb means either to do or to make. So what's the difference between God and idols? Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does asa all that he pleases. Unlike idols, verse 4, that are the work, ma'asa, of human hands. Verse 8, those who make idols, asa, end up becoming like them. Like them. They become dead. Unlike verse 15, those blessed by the Lord who made asa the heavens. The contrast that the author is trying to help us to see is this is why idols don't work. Because you made it. Whereas God, the one who transcends the world, who stands outside of it, who is the creator who made all things, he's the one that you actually need. In a sense, and I want us to think about this for a moment, the psalm is kind of telling us, you can't ultimately bless yourself. It doesn't work. It's completely unsatisfying. What you long for is you long for someone who is outside of you, independent of you, to bless you, to affirm you, to approve of you. But this is the one thing that an idol can never do because in the end, you made it. And so it's like you patting yourself on the back, blessing yourself. So think about uh, when you were young, like elementary school. I mean, our elementary school kids in the room, this is, this is you right now. When you're young, don't we love it when a parent or a coach or a teacher, like an authority figure, someone that we recognize as an authority figure outside of us, says, that was awesome. Wow, look what you just did. Man, that was awesome. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I feel so good. But when we get older, like when, when you get into middle school and high school and college and adulthood, well, one, you start to realize that there's flaws in like everyone, uh, your parents, your family, church, like it, it, there's just flaws. And so, you know, you really say like, I'm going to choose where I find meaning and significance. I'm the one who's going to determine which voices count in my life. I'm going to determine which voices don't count in my life. And so in a sense, we make something God. And if we stop and reflect, it's kind of arbitrary. Why that? And not these other 15 options that you could have chosen. I, I don't know. I chose to make making money and success my God. And so that's, that's how I feel approved. That's how I feel like my life counts. That's how I feel like it matters. Somebody else, my family. If my family's good, then I, you know, I feel like life's good. Other people, approval. I want people to love me, I want people to respect me, I want everyone to know who I am and, and to have this reputation. Somebody else couldn't care less about any of it. They just want to win. They just want to win and have success. It's totally arbitrary, and you set the standard by what winning means anyways. What is a good family? You are the one who defined that. How many friends have to like you for it to count? How much money? Right? It's arbitrary what you chose to some extent, and then it's arbitrary what it counts to win at it. You've set up this game, in a sense, and you play it, and even if you win, it's kind of just like 
you patting yourself on the back, at the end of the day, it's nothing more than you blessing yourself. Think about social media and how this works itself out in social media. We enter into these echo chambers of friends and people online who we've chosen, and then we allow whether they like a post, heart a picture, reshare a tweet, or follow our Insta to be the thing that makes me feel like I have value. And every study will tell you it does not work. It makes you more miserable. And not only does it not work, but the psalm says more. It corrupts, it degrades you, it dehumanizes you. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols are dead. They're lifeless. And so trusting in idols takes people who are wondrously made to reflect God and to know God and reduces them and corrupts them until they become like the lifeless idol, like the shadow of of the glory they were meant to know. Right? If you go back to Genesis 1, humanity is created in the image of God. And what do images do? They reflect. We're made to reflect. And that is a wonderful thing, as long as the thing that we're reflecting is the thing we were made for. We were made for God, the original, and so we're meant to reflect Him. And that is amazing because we're, we were made to participate in the life of God and to know the love of God and to reflect His beauty into the world. That's the glory that we were made for. But when we turn from God and we say, we're going to reflect something here in creation. We're going to make our lives about something here that we can control, not about you. It's not that we stop reflecting. It's just our reflections become reflections of dim shadows in a dark world. Rather than reflecting the glory and the light of God and shining in that radiance, now our lives are reflecting shadows. And so, of course, our lives are filled with anxiety and stress because we were never meant to do that. And the things of this world cannot hold the weight and the glory that we were made for. This is what the the psalm goes on to talk about. The end result of all of this, of worshiping the idol, is to become a lifeless corpse. It's to die. That's what verse 17 is saying when it says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. Trusting in idols leads to not being able to praise and enjoy God, the God you were made to know. And this is contrasted, verse 18, with those who are blessed by the Lord, who trust in him, which leads to everlasting life and enjoyment. But before we consider this last question of why we must trust in God, look at verses 5 through 7 of this passage. It really would have been enough for the psalmist to just say, idols don't work and you can't worship them because you made them and God made you. End of story. That case closed. But yet he gives us this sevenfold refutation of idols in verses 5 through 7. In a way, he's saying this is the comprehensive refutation of idols. 
And there's something about considering each one very briefly. And as we do this, to compare it to the things that vie for your heart's attention this morning. Verse 5, idols have mouths, but they do not speak. And verse 7, they do not make a sound in their throat. Idols cannot give you any revelation. They can't tell you who you are. They can't tell you what you're for. They can't tell you what the purpose of life is. You walk around blind. Verse 5, they have eyes, but they do not see. There's no moral guidance. There's no right and wrong. I don't know, figure it out. Verse 6, they have ears, but they do not hear. They don't hear your prayers. They don't hear your cries. Verse 6, again, they have noses but do not smell. In the ancient world, for the God to smell your sacrifice meant that it had been received and accepted. This picture here of idols having noses but no smell is a picture of ongoing sacrifice, day after day, week after week, never knowing if it's enough, never knowing if you're enough, never knowing if it's accepted. Verse 7, they have hands, but they do not feel. Idols don't know and they don't care how you feel. They don't know what life is like for you. They have feet, but do not walk. Idols are dead, and so they cannot actively follow you and help you and be present with you. And this is why, our fourth question, why? Why must we trust in God? Because God does all of these things that the idols don't. God speaks his word, a light to your path. God sees, he hears, he smells, he feels, he walks, he is the Lord. And that word, when it's in all capital letters, we've said this a few times this summer, it's God's personal name. And you see it throughout the psalm, it's Yahweh. It's the name associated with God's covenant, that God is a God who freely chooses to bind himself to his people in love and faithfulness. It's, it's the name associated with the Exodus event from Egypt, that God is a God who redeems his people from slavery and draws them to himself that they might worship him. This is the God who remembers his people, who's determined to bless them. And you can almost hear as you're reading this psalm the writer pleading with anyone who's reading, with us this morning, oh Israel, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. There is no comparison with anything else that you could worship and trust. This psalm, Psalm 115, is in a group of psalms that starts in Psalm 113 and it goes to Psalm 118. And this group of psalms is called the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel is a word that means praise in Hebrew. And these psalms were read and sung together in, in connection with and celebration of the Exodus event. 
These psalms were sung in the liturgy and festivals of Passover, and so it is likely that Jesus and his disciples, when they were in the upper room celebrating the Lord's Supper on the night before he went to the cross, that they would have sung Psalm 113 and 114 before they had that meal. If you've been with us this summer, we looked at both of those psalms. Psalm 113 is about the infinitely great God who draws near in mercy. And Psalm 114 is about the God of the Exodus who delivers his people. And a number of scholars think that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 30, when it mentions that Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Olives sing a hymn, not long before Jesus is taken away by the soldiers, that they're singing Psalm 115 through 118. So what I'd like you to do is imagine that you are there that night on the Mount of Olives and you are with Jesus and you are singing the words of Psalm 115. You are singing, desiring that God would act in this world to show forth his faithfulness and his steadfast love in a world where his relevance is questioned. I want you to imagine singing this psalm by Jesus who is Yahweh himself come in the flesh into this world who is about to demonstrate the utter incomparability of Jesus with anything else that you could trust. I want you to imagine singing about lifeless, dead idols who can't do anything to help you as you are standing next to the one who is the exact opposite of an idol, who has a mouth, and with it speaks words of grace and truth into your life, who has eyes that see you in your lostness and in your waywardness and your struggles and has compassion toward you, who has hands and feels, knows what it's like to live in this world and to struggle in this world and to feel the weight of this world. He knows it. Who has feet, who have walked in this world and have loved you and lived in active faithfulness toward you. Jesus is the image of God, the exact representation of God's being. And Jesus lived his whole life reflecting the glory of God into this world perfectly, and yet he goes to the cross to suffer the judgment and the fate and the death that Psalm 115 says is coming to idolaters. Why? So that people like us, people who, if we're honest, our idolaters can be received, can be restored, can be redeemed, can be brought to reflect the image of God that we were meant for and to know the love of God. Friends, if you have any doubt at all, compare the love of Jesus and his faithfulness to anything else in this world. There is nothing, there is no one who can do what Jesus can do and what he has done for you. O Israel, trust in the Lord.